The Teachers College at Emporia State University presents How We Teach This. If you missed part one of this interview with Dr. Jim Persinger, you want to check out Season 5, Episode 5, where he shares the beginning part of the myths of the school shooter and gives the data and the facts to explain why we are where we are with school safety. In today's half of the interview, we're going to hear more about those statistics, but focusing on what the data shows school safety is about. And you might be surprised. The biggest danger is not mass shootings. It's actually suicide. So join us for this second part of the conversation, and I think you will find it hopeful and inspiring. It does give us hope to realize that there is actually understandable information. So if a teacher or student does report that they have concerns about another student's activity or interests and they are fearful, there may be an upcoming episode. What does a teacher or a school do? Do they have that threat assessment as part of the district safety plans? Well, they're supposed to. (laughs) Uh, The state of Kansas is is one of the few states that doesn't require that you have a school safety plan or emergency operations plan. I forget the exact number, but the most recent survey I'm aware of, they still, Kansas still shows up, is not requiring it. I have visited with and consulted and trained people in countless dozens of Kansas districts, usually after an event, and I have not encountered one yet that had a fully formed emergency operations plan outside of limited, typically large, wealthy Northeast Kansas districts. You can imagine which ones I'm referring to. But even in some of those, serious gaps because they had a developed plan, but nobody reviewed it for six years. So then they make mistakes in enacting it and keep people that have their role to play uh, aren't with the district anymore. And now they don't actually have a plan at that point. So it's fair to say you're supposed to have these. And threat assessment has been a well-understood concept now for 20 years and very well fleshed out. And free trainings online that are quite good that you can sign up uh, for. And we'll provide, as part of this podcast, the, the resources for that. But very few people, including your mental health professionals and so on, have formal training in it. Your school resource officer probably does, though. To give you a, a picture, then, of the process of threat assessment, what the purpose of threat assessment is to say, does this student pose a threat? And again... Did they make a threat? That doesn't matter. Do they pose a threat is the question we're trying to answer. And so it is essentially a multidisciplinary process. It takes a team approach to get down to it and conduct what is really a factual investigation that identifies what happened, what are the factors, how well does this predict, is is it an imminent threat, is it a possible threat, is it a minimal threat kind of uh, decision that needs to be made, and what are we going to do about it? And in the mind of the public that's heard a threat assessment, what everybody thinks it has to do with is catching school shooters and disciplining and expelling them and putting them in prison, when the reality is properly enacted threat assessment is to help recognize students in serious distress, usually with mental health concerns, 
and getting them the help they need so they don't go down a dangerous path. So it's to work with students and recognize that they're lacking some coping skills and helping teach them so that they can be psychologically healthy folks. Because as one I might imagine, I may have overlooked this, virtually any instance when there's been a school shooting, the person has mental health problems that have been identified usually, and suicidality is um, there on almost every instance. And then these people are in such pain, they don't have an escape plan. They're in such pain, they want everybody to know what pain they're in, and they're going to share it as widely as they can. There's other motives like notoriety, but that's actually fairly minor. There's people that want to live stream, so I'll be famous. But uh, no, it's depression, suicidality, and poor coping skills. And all of those occur in significant numbers of our population every year in, in middle and high school. And that's what threat assessment should really be about is as a mental health initiative to care for our students, connect them to services that schools are really, really good at. If we're looking at school violence and we're thinking differently than just school shooters, how does being suicidal impact school safety? That's that's a good question. In fact, I want to walk through because I have some I have some stats here, and I'll give my citations for uh, most of these. Most of these are CDC, uh, which is as credible as it gets in citing some things. If you want to focus on what it takes to keep students safe, unfortunately, the majority of the public focuses on shooting and physical violence. But let me walk you through a few numbers first. Classrooms have never been safer. Media coverage gives us an impression that there's shark attacks all the time. Shark attacks are extraordinarily rare. They're just reported on every time they happen. Classrooms have never been safer when it comes from FBI and CDC statistics to actual criminal victimization in American schools. This includes all things such as sexual assault, physical attacks, and shootings, decreased 70% since 1992. Wow. You people are aware of that statistic. Schools are very good at managing these things, and we have better systems in place to recognize students in distress and who have emotional concerns. To walk through school shootings specifically, and these stats I'll cite come down to two different sources in working in tandem. The CDC keeps accurate data and definitions and, and, and databases that the New York Times actually did a great analysis of. And this data is from 2018, but it's I believe it's still actually accurate in saying an average of 27 people every year in our country die in mass shootings. 27. 17 of them involve school shootings. The highest number ever recorded is between Sandy Hook through Parkland, 2012 to 2018, 138 people died. That raised the rate, which had been an average of 17 youth dying each year in a mass shooting, was raised to 19.71. During the worst phase of school shootings in recorded history, uh, about 20 students each year dying that way. So using that figure as a baseline, children are far more likely to die in the car on the way to school than to die in school from any act of violence. 1,400 times more likely to die in the car on the way to school, but not all those kids are wearing seatbelts. 
They're more likely to die coming to school on their bike, but not all kids are wearing helmets. You want to keep kids safe. If you had to prioritize between a campaign to have active shooter protocol drills going in school and teaching students about the importance of wearing a seatbelt, I would invest in wearing a seatbelt is what our stats say about actual vulnerability of students. And there's ways of uh, assessing vulnerability I'll talk about here in a little bit. But that just gives you an idea of statistics. Students are 12 times more likely to die from texting while driving, actually. But we don't do trainings on that. Well, right. And then this, I think, is one of the most telling figures. National Child Abuse and Neglect System. This is data from 49 states. says every year, 1,700 students die from parental abuse which means students are 86 times more likely to die at the hands of their parent every year than from a shooting at school. And so the you see some of the implications, I hope, for psychologically. When we instill in students the concept of you're going to pass through a metal detector, we must keep you safe. We're talking about arming teachers, we must keep you safe. We've got all these things in place. Hey, on Friday, we're going to be running a mock drill so you understand how to proceed in the case of a school shooting. We're sending message after message and investing resources in systems that have not been found to keep students safe yet. They haven't been found to keep students safe. I'll talk about lockdowns in a minute. Lockdowns help. But these active shooter drills, they traumatize students and tell them students aren't, that they're not safe in school. They make school feel like it's not safe when it actually is extraordinarily safe. If you're going to invest in active shooter drills, it begs the question, why don't you train every student every year in what to do should they get home at night and their parent decide to beat them to death? Would actually save more lives, but as you'd imagine, the trauma of having those trainings is appalling that I might suggest you do that, but it's as logical as doing active shooter trainings and investing all the resources. In it. So we have to keep pers- perspective on the reality of what students are really vulnerable to. School shootings is one of the lowest level things that's realistically going to affect youth. So just to give you a, f- a final kind of punchline to some of this, during that same period when 138 died in school shootings, guess how many youth who were in school age 18 or under died by suicide? You can spot check my stats because it's going to, I don't have these, the most latest stuff. Around 8,400 is the level of difference. And in fact, Kansas statistics, I think I have my current number. You know, at the Newton, Connecticut shooting, we lost, I believe it was 20 youth and, and several adults, but I believe it was 20 youth. We lose 35 youth in Kansas schools to suicide every year. We have a slow motion, two column mines every year taking student lives. That's the threat. Everybody's focused on Uvalde. We exceed that every year. would involve deaths that we know from intervention protocols we may be able to reduce by as many as half. could be preventable if we have effective Empirically validated, there's a couple models that are not expensive to enact. They just take the will. They don't even take particularly specialized training. Teen, uh, teen screen, signs of suicide are the big ones. Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration says they're the gold standard. Uh, virtually no schools have suicide prevention programs. 
And I say this loudly because there is a veneer and the public, uh, and I think many school boards, assume we do have those programs, especially because of the Jason Flat Act, which says you have to have certain things to prevent su- student suicide. And when what the Jason Flat Act then prescribes isn't a suicide prevention program. It's an every teacher get online for, well, for technically uh, 60 minutes every year and click through a presentation of the warning signs of suicide and what to do if you're worried about a student, which the research says is 100% not a suicide prevention program. And in fact, the research says in and of itself, we don't know of anything measurable that says you do any good with that. That packaged with a, as part of a suicide prevention program does help. So despite having legislators and school boards thinking we have these programs and school districts paying for this stuff, we don't have anything that's required to be effective. And I have to say, frankly, given the number of suicide issues and clusters in Kansas schools I've been part of every year, I have never encountered a school district that has suicide prevention program that is a measurable works sort of program. That's our real vulnerability. Wow. You mentioned that there's money available for school safety and that a lot of districts are spending it on metal detectors. Is there anything besides a suicide prevention program that districts ought to be investing in with this funding that you are aware of? I do not disagree at all. You know, we have a Kansas School Safety Institute, which people, in fact, they presented here about a month ago at the Kansas State Board of Education heard their findings. You want to appreciate those folks who are, I have heard nothing but wonderful things about their competence and their ability to walk through and do some assessments in schools to make them safer. Their focus, these are school resource officers, by the way, their focus is on things that are known to help. Being able to lock your classroom door is important, (laughs) right? Measures to prevent strangers from entering the building unnoticed are important. These things matter. Crime prevention, the concept crime prevention uh, through by environmental design, which school resource officers, but a few other people are trained in, like not having bushes growing up in front of windows where students could break a window and be able to pass things into the building, get around your metal. Those are the kinds of things, with one of the biggest ones being the students and the teachers who park a, a rock or a stick or a brick, we all know you're a teacher, you know what I'm talking about. Every school has a place where people want to be able to go quickly access something and be able to get back in and there's a rock there. That, it is important to recognize those things do keep students safe. Those assessments, the whole metal detector thing, I can't say I agree with, but the systems that some schools are spending, some some of these funds are to keep students safe, they're, they're good ideas um, because they are preventative approaches that keep every visibility uh, and keep strangers out. Those things help. By the way, the main danger of strangers is ex-spouses going in the school, grabbing their kid and running out when they don't have custody. That's, that's actually what happens. Oh, my Really, as a conclusion to just conceptually, I think everything I've been talking about, I want to relay an event that I uh, was involved with uh, some years ago. And I'm going to point out, this is not, I have multiple instances like this, but this is an example that I think will ring true to educators listening to this. 
I've placed hundreds now of mental health professionals and helped arrange their internships and practical experience in Kansas schools in more than 22, 23 years of doing this, mostly school psychologists. And knowing that we don't have things that really keep students safe, like suicide prevention programs in place, I've used that as leverage because it's hard to find school counselors. It's hard to find school psychologists. So I am in meetings, as I did in this particular district, where I say, I've got two interns here, and here's what they're capable of and what they've been trained in. And as part of it, I think it's really important that they could take on and create a suicide prevention program. It won't cost you a thing. I'll train all the teachers. It won't cost you any resources, uh, uh, time for on any base part. Now, this conversation occurred in a very wealthy Northeast Kansas school district that has about as many resources as one might imagine. Um, you know, some of these counties, they have higher per capita income than Beverly Hills. And I'll just give that much information uh, about it. But in this particular building, the way that this conversation, when I expressed that, what happened at that point with counselors around the table, a school psychologist supervisor at the table, an administration, including the building principal and a special ed director or whatever their title is at the table. One of those individuals, as I am finishing this thought, puts their hand in front of my face aggressively and says very sternly, we are not going to go there. It is unacceptable that was, I know what you're talking about, person, or it's unacceptable that we would have these kind of programs. Our school board, our parents would never tolerate that. I have had that conversation repeatedly, including recently in Kansas, like in the last month in Kansas schools, when I've had this discussion. And my initial thought upon hearing that, I'll tell you their objection in a minute, but my initial thought in hearing that was that I was so angry, I wanted to say, have you picked up a textbook since 1978? Because their concern was having a suicide prevention program will make students suicidal. Because a good suicide prevention program entails a universal screen, it's called. Every student's filling out a form. It's usually four or five questions. And the questions are pointed. And they ask, are you thinking of hurting yourself? Is the kind of question. A student who answers those questions, we should be gravely concerned about when they say they're thinking of hurting themselves. There's no other way to get that information than asking, and it is the heart of an effective suicide prevention. But there has been a myth that has been refuted since the 70s that teachers and parents are afraid to ask a loved one, are you thinking of hurting yourself? Are you thinking of killing yourself? So they don't ask the question or they frame it, they tone it down and frame it in a way that is not the right question because they think it'll put thoughts in their mind. And I'm here to tell you that research is extraordinarily clear. A student who is possibly suicidal is so grateful and relieved that you asked the question. They were waiting for somebody to notice. They were in despair. It's a caring attachment. It saves lives. But parents believe in the myth. School boards believe in the myth. Multiple well-educated administrators and and uh, others to make decisions and control resources believe this myth. And so it's politically unacceptable to have suicide prevention programs, though, if you want to keep students safe, this that's what you should invest in. Wow. And this isn't rocket science. Like, 
anybody in mental health circles with a credential knows this to be true. So there's a perception there's a school safety crisis. I am a very prolific trainer of school safety and crisis teams. I have this year trained a couple hundred people in it because it's a very hot topic. You know why it's a hot topic? School shootings. Nobody's calling me in for the real vulnerability, which is mostly mental health related, uh, suicide related. But there is no school safety crisis. And what I have to tell, teach people is I'm going to walk you through a training that can revolutionize things and save lives and so help with traumatic stress. But don't you dare think about this as a school shooting thing, because if so, you're squandering the opportunity to use it to keep children safe from the real threats and to get help to students and refer students to mental health that need it for all sorts of, uh, of concerns. What might be better viewed with on school safety crisis when it comes to school shooters is that's a gun violence epidemic. But even there, most of that consists of suicides and accidents and single victim homicides involving gang violence, not youth who go to shoot up a school. School safety crisis, not a matter of shooting. So I hope that helps folks who are hearing this understand real vulnerabilities and understand where resources should be allocated. And I don't know any way to change things except educator by educator so that you can ask the right questions of your administration to say, I'm really worried. Tell me about our suicide prevention program and hear what they're telling you. If that program doesn't involve you as a teacher being actively informed every year that this is the day you'll be passing out these or that students will be getting a text with a link to answer certain questions. If you don't have that in your program, you probably already know it. And that tells you you don't actually have a suicide prevention program. And whatever you're about to be told, Persinger is telling you, is not a suicide prevention program. It's something else. It's probably a gatekeeper training. It means they tell you about suicide so you can help. The teachers are not the front line on this. Students reporting themselves is the front line and reporting their friends is the front line. Some people feel when I have given these talks to teachers and I do like a word cloud to see, give me one word impression, it's disturbing, depressing, demoralizing. I think you should think about this as confidence building, inspiring, optimism is what I feel knowing this, because what I'm saying is there are right answers. We're just not implementing them. These things aren't mysteries. They're correct answers. We just now have to have the will to act. I think it actually gives me hope because when you hear about the school shootings in the news, it does seem so random and it makes us feel more vulnerable. But hearing that there are things that we can control, there are things that we can actively do to make our school a safer place. There are people who understand this process and knowing that the school shooting mass incidents like Uvalde are rare, I think does give me hope. And uh, I know I'm going to go talk to my principal and get more information about our district's suicide prevention program and hopefully better understand. I know we have one of the programs where students can contact safely and report things. Is it being an involved part of our students or is it just a poster on a wall? 
hundred percent yes. And I appreciate that comment because the poster on the wall approach is what so many districts take with in, in regard to really important matters. And I, there's actually research on those approaches, those awareness approaches doesn't really help. It's that's part of a broader system you'd have to have in place. There's right answers and almost any of your school mental health people know these answers. They're just not allowed to act, frankly. My hope is that instead of continuing to go district by district, trying to have these conversations and trying to change minds, because I can't say I've ever changed the mind of a person who could control these things in schools. My dream is that our legislators and our board of education, all of whom are elected officials, if they have the will and desire to make it so, knowing that this won't have a fiscal note to it, because that's the first thing that they stop is this costs too much. It's like, this is not something that's going to cost you or your constituents money. You just have to say it's important and required that we do this legislatively, or at least in policy, the Board of Education, at the local Board of Education level. And my dream is at the state Board of Education level, along with our legislature, having a mandate and we can fix this in a matter of a couple of years. I have communicated almost word for word everything that we've been talking about today has been shared with some legislators by me and with the members of the current State Board of Education, and I'm I'm hoping for a dialogue with them on this. So if those teachers and educators who are listening to our podcast would like more information about how they can do something within their control to improve the safety of our schools, where would you suggest they start? A couple of places. First, at, just as a pro bono service for, for 20 years, I have such a network of former students and especially mental health personnel. I am thrilled when the school contacts me and says, I'd really like your assistance understanding this. Unfortunately, I'm usually contacted after something's happened and they want assistance, but I'm thrilled to help provide resources, do consultations. I do uh, many crisis kind of trainings every year that help people understand how to keep people safe. That's not about school shooters. National Child Traumatic Stress Network, which is a link we'll provide, is a federally funded, brilliant, brilliant website that will has extraordinary resources, including a learning center, your tax dollars paid for, where you can sign up for trainings on some of the things that I've talked about. And there's a couple other places, and we'll provide those resources. But the National Child Traumatic Stress Network has been my go-to in sharing with districts. Like, this is your one-stop shop with the best stuff aimed at educators on these. And I think it even delivers certificates that may count for your CEUs or other um, requirements for, for professional development each year. Awesome. Well, I thank you so much for your time to be here and share with our listening audience. Do you have anything else that you'd like to share that we've not covered so far? I think just just the main one is that we we're so uncomfortable with talking about mental health topics in this country. What I'm telling you from knowing this research really well is that we should not we should follow the lead of youth. Our school age kids aren't concerned about the stigma with these things. They are relieved that we're talking about these things. They aren't necessarily talking about these with folks my age. They're not talking about this with most of their teachers because we grew up with such, such a stigma that you don't share these things. Instead of finding this a depressing topic, I want you to realize there are right answers and we should be optimistic and hopeful things will be better and that we can control it by saying, I'm going to 
demonstrate I care for my students. I'm going to make sure they know that I care for their well-being, and I'm going to work in, within my administration to do right by these students to keep them safe from the kinds of things that are that could really harm them. And in the scheme of things, it improves everybody's mental health. It's been found. It heads off anxiety disorders. It heads off depression to recognize an eight or a 10-year-old struggling with some of what we're talking about and help them develop skills so they don't become depressed to begin with. I have long said we have all the research that says we should be in a golden age right now of mental health in our country because it's cheaper to do all of this preventatively and prevent pathology than to treat it in the aftermath. We have everything to do it right. And you know who's most effective in doing this at the school level? It's not your school counselor. It's the teacher. It's your care for your students that is the most powerful mental health intervention that's ever been devised. And I'm saying that that statistically, you're the people who keep your students safe with the caring attachment. So take hope now. Yes, that is very powerful. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by the Teachers College at Emporia State University. The podcast features talks with experts and educators addressing topics that can help you as an educator, a parent, and a person. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We release new episodes every other Wednesday. You can get more information provided by our guests on our website, www.emporia.edu slash HWTT. We would appreciate it if you could help us spread the word about the podcast. You can follow us and share on Twitter at HWTT underscore ESU. You can find us on Facebook. Just search How We Teach This. If you'd like to be a guest on our show or are willing to give us some feedback, please send us an email at HWTT at Emporia.edu. I'm Christy Dugan, the executive producer and host of the podcast, and you've been listening to How We Teach This.